Hi, I'm Courtney. This is something positive for positive people. And I just found $20 in my phone case right before this podcast. <laughs> Today, I am here with Melissa from Sex Positive Families. Um, are we going to talk about the podcast or is it the company? Um, the podcast and the company. I think all right. it, I feel like it's all, all together. It's all part of the cause. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about that after we get through your introduction. Um, so, Melissa is 37 years old. You, we think you're 37. <laughs> uh, you work as a social worker slash sex educator. You are a heterosexual woman, she, her pronoun. You are in a monogamous relationship with your husband. I, well, so... Boyfriend. I am interested in jumping into that step uh, anytime soon. We enjoy raising our families together, so we have a blended family situation. And um, and yeah, and I'll also say that I actually identify as genderqueer, okay. um, so I am open to any of the pronouns, and that's something that I recently came to understand uh, about myself. So. Well, shit, I completely messed that up. All right. <laughs> no, no, this is, no, this is great. This is great to dialogue because this is... This is where we're at, I think, in our society, again, as part of the sex-positive conversation, you know, understanding the gender spectrum, you know, and, and it's, an, it's a journey. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And since doing this podcast, I find myself talking to more people who are in tune with their sexuality, who identify yes. as things that I've never heard of. Like uh, one of the first guests I had, she goes, I'm pansexual. I was like, uh, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um, she mentioned polyamory and I was like, oh, you know, I've heard of it, but never been able to really have a conversation about it. To me, it just sounded like I have sex with multiple people, but it's mm-hmm. so much deeper than it's that. so deep and, yeah. it's, and it's very much about commitment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. All right. And uh, we got to your career field and we talked about your sexuality. So, quick story before we get started. Normally, uh, the guests that I have on are people who have some sort of STD or are living with some uh, a sexual. Uh, yeah, there's no other way to put it. I tried to rephrase it. People who are living with STDs. So I normally reach out to or have people reach out to me and have them on the podcast to talk about their experience with their condition. This is one of the more recent cases of me. I I follow Melissa on Instagram, Sex Positive Families, and I saw that she was posting a lot of sex positive things and uh, just really being more educational. And I feel like that's something that has come up a lot on the podcast is a lack of sex education uh, for children. Like growing up, I talked about my lack of sex education and it's come up with a lot of the guests that we've had on as well. Um, Just being misinformed and being taught one way and it's really outdated for the society that we live in. Don't have sex, be abstinent. That is not what message we should be sending to our youth and our families and even, you know, in like conversations with uh close friends like we can't say don't have sex it doesn't work it, doesn't it work. does not work and it is proven uh you have me to attest to that <laughs> and in reaching out about this we came to found out that melissa actually has hsv2 right yes absolutely <laughs> so that's goes to show like you just don't know i mean first off unless you ask <laughs> uh, but in just 
this this is just a really good example of how common it is and this is someone who is a sex educator who's a social worker we're talking about a 37 we think year old african-american <laughs> female uh with a family like the this this is more of these are the real kinds life. of people that we want to hear we're it from yes it's human beings and it's part of a, a human experience absolutely so before we talk about you know what i wanted to talk about let's talk about what needs to be talked about first uh for the podcast and that's just your experience with hsv2 first off how long have you been hsv2 positive yeah so it has been i want to say about 10 years mm -hmm. um so it's not a brand new diagnosis and uh do, do you just want me to kind of Oh yeah, the, we the could just yeah. So uh, okay. in short, it'd be like, yeah. what was going on with you around that time? Do you know where you got it from? And yeah. like, what were so, your symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, at the time, was earlier in my career uh, as a social worker, and I was working in the field of HIV and STIs, and so I was serving folks that are that were HIV positive often helping to provide support and linkage to services and discussions around disclosure of their status and normalizing and destigmatizing, right? So when I found myself with flu-like symptoms and, you know, really sick and uh, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't tie that directly for myself because I thought that I was in a monogamous relationship at that time. And I came, you know, I went to the doctor and uh, I learned that I had genital herpes. And that was a real shock and blow to me. I did, in spite of my career and my education up to that point, I can own that I had my own um, messages, you know, internally about what a diagnosis like that would mean to me and for me. And that definitely shined and played out when, when, it, when I became positive. I was concerned, of course, about being, um, you know, not, not being as lovable or as kind of being, you know, tainted at that point, you know, realize again, these feelings came up. And of course, dealing with the fact that my partner was the one that had um, transmitted it to me. I don't know, it never became clear whether he was aware of his diagnosis. We um, did not remain in the relationship after that. And I then became single. And so then I had to, again, confront with myself a sense of, of my worth and my value as I looked to try to enter into a new connection with mm -hmm. someone because as humans, you know, often we are, we desire connection. We want to be affirmed and validated and loved and all of these things. So I was really struggling with feeling like I was lovable at that point and, you know, who will want to have sex with me and how will I, and again, all of this while I am in the work and in the field. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting, of course, again, 10 years out now and certainly doing the level of work that I'm doing now, it, uh, it's a testament again to a lot of the messaging that we get and we internalize and that our society gives us, you know, so many jokes get thrown around about herpes and, you know, uh, ways in which it is shamed. Mm -hmm. And so even with certain levels of education that you might have and awareness that you might have, 
until something happens to you is when you may you may really learn more about uh, you know how, how you really feel and what you would do in the situation so I began at, dating What's at that? this point in time um now, I don't know if you're the kind of person who brings work home, but when you met this person, like, did you bring the sex education, Melissa, with you into that? Or was it like, I'm, I'm leaving all that shit at work. Like, <laughs> this is me dating. I'm just dating. And what I'm essentially asking is, did you have the talk? Yeah, okay. Good, great question. So I went initially on to... Uh, I don't even remember the name of it now, but, you know, one of the dating websites that are for folks with HSV2. And uh, because, again, I thought, like, I immediately went into mode of I contracted this because someone did not. I did, I, I oh, I'm sorry. I mean, did you have this conversation with him beforehand? Yeah, what, okay. what, what I'm getting to is that um, I was not given a choice. Right. When I And I did not want to put someone else in that position where they were not given a choice. So mm -hmm. disclosure was something that I knew right away that moving on in my life, I was going to have to address. I was not going to um, transmit HSV2 without someone either knowing or consenting or being aware of the risks that were involved. Mm -hmm. So yes, when I went and uh, connected with a new person, that was part of those early conversations. But it was very hard. Yeah. It was very hard. It was very... Uh, I was very afraid. I was afraid of rejection. Right. Because uh, I felt like I'd really connected with this person, and I felt like I had a lot to lose. And uh, and that rightfully, I felt, yeah, rightfully so. Someone could not want to partner with me. And um, so, yeah, thankfully, I guess, um, this person was receiving and open to it. Um, I will say, though, it was not ultimately a healthy relationship. And the reason why I wanted to just point that out is that I know in retrospect that because my sense of self-worth was not high and a lot of that was impacted by my diagnosis and by the shame that I carried about that, I definitely jumped into a relationship that I, it was not part of my pattern of mm -hmm. relationships up to that point, but I felt damaged. I yeah. felt like damaged goods and I did not take the time out to really process that and heal from that. Yeah. So definitely that is something that, uh, you know, I, I really would love and through the work that I know you're doing and that I'm doing, you know, we want people to shake the shame and we want the tra taboos to be trashed so that people's sense of self-worth is not compromised Got over it. these normal and human life experiences. Yeah. And I want to go back a little bit and you can feel free to just tell me no if you don't want to answer this, but okay. did you have the talk with your previous partner? Your previous partner, did you have that, hey, you know, when's the last time you've been tested? Here's my status. What's yours? Did you have that conversation with the partner you believe you yes. contracted uh, HSV2 from? Oh, the one that I contracted from? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And that was resistant to going to the doctor uh, with me. So again, big, huge red flags. Um, I later found out that that person ended up having a child, and the timing in terms of the age of the child was that the t you know the child was conceived while we were in a relationship. Oh. It had been, I think, up to that point, a nine-month relationship, so it wasn't like a short-term relationship. Man. So again, I thought that I was in a monogamous relationship, and I was not. And that person was not in a was not honest. He did not and, get the memo. Uh, yeah. 
So, so yeah, that's that's again the part of a lot of the prevention messaging that we hear out there is that you, you know, you just you never get comfortable. You know, it, you you take care of you and your health and make that primary, and have the regular and frequent conversations about sexual health mm-hmm. and what the, your partners are doing to ensure that they are sexually healthy and um because you just don't you never you can't control another person and you don't know fully yeah yeah and i i understand that and i often tell people you know before i got i I didn't really have that talk the extent of my talk was do i need this condom and that was me essentially asking are you on birth control because in the back of my mind i make the assumption that oh if you have an scd you're in pain, I would be able to see it, and so you wouldn't want to have sex. So, like, that's kind of where my head was at before my diagnosis. And, like, since my diagnosis, like, I would either have taken the necessary precautions uh, all the time and had that conversation, or if the conversation wasn't had, it was just like, all right, I'm going to be extra careful here. But even then, you know, you're not avoiding everything, and then there is there comes a point where... The only way to, I mean, I don't even want to say avoid it, but you really have to have that open, honest communication with your potential partner. And then, you know, you we as humans have a sense for when there's a red flag or when someone's lying to us. So if someone gets really offensive, like, oh, why would you think I have an SCD? That's the worst. You know, that's when you know, okay, we're, I, I, I'm going to make a conscious choice to either still move forward or I'm going to remove myself from this situation because it's not like I, my open honesty is not being reciprocated, nor is it being respected. You would think that right. someone who is on the receiving end of that conversation would more so be like, oh, wow, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to have that conversation. You know, as far as I'm aware, here's my status, you know, and now that makes for more of a deeper connection. And um, as I often say, like better sex, because it's not like, oh, I don't think I have to worry about that. I mean, they could be excellent liars or whatever, but you know, you've had the conversation and that's just right now one less worry that you have. Yeah, and and another thing too is that there's always risk. There's it's not accurate that we that you're going to have safe sex. You can have safer safer sex, sex but yep. safe sex and risk free. There's always still a risk, even with a condom, you can transmit uh, STIs. Um, and I like the the term I saw you use uh, the skin to skin contact mm-hmm. in terms of HSV too. So um, there are things that we can do to reduce our risks, but we're not completely safe from. So therefore, you're you're wanting to give an opportunity for you and your partners to say, "Am I willing to take this risk? You know, am I willing to?" Uh, and, and by having the communication, then you can you can think through that and make an informed choice about that if you know your status and your partner's right. status. Right. Right. And so. Let's talk about what you're doing. How do we begin to have that conversation? Because we could often find ourselves at a, there's no right time, really. I mean, if you do it too early, then it's like, oh, well, this person just wants to have sex on to the next. And we live in a dating world where the next potential partner is literally a swipe away or a message away uh, from, you know, having sex. So 
when's the best time? Do we want to do it before we meet? Do we want to do it on the first date? Do we want to wait until we're naked and about to go to penetration? Like, at what point in time do we have this conversation with a potential partner? Right. Great question. So it can be a range, okay? And that is going to depend on first. We always first have to look within us. What type of relationships or connections are we looking to have with another person? Um, are we looking to have <clears throat> just uh, you know casual sexual relationships? Nothing wrong with that, right? Are we looking to have committed, something that goes into more of a committed relationship, whether that's with one partner or more than one partner? Um, how, what depth and level of vulnerability are we looking to have with another person? Because then that, that then can inform what time frame feels right and most appropriate. And uh, so, yeah, like we talked about earlier, there are dating websites that you can uh, access. And so people are putting it on front street, right, right up front. You know that these are diagnoses that they are, uh, that are living with them, right? And so therefore, uh, you know, right off. And so I love, I love that, that you said the diagnosis is living with them. Uh, I saw that like once posted somewhere and I remember like, oh, I like that. And then just forgot about it. But we we find ourselves positioning it, positioning it like I am living with dot, dot, dot. When I mean, that shit's living with us. Like we pay. We we want to keep our power. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we pay the mortgage. They're they're subleasing. (laughs) Absolutely. So so sometimes, you know, putting it out front, that can feel really comfortable and really um uh, right for someone and then sometimes it's you want to get to know someone because you don't know this could just be a friend this this doesn't always mean that you're going to have that connection that goes towards intimacy yeah. so i think it's completely appropriate to uh decide that you are going to get to know someone you know and then when it seems as though you're moving into a place where you are having the feelings that lead to intimacy or that you're desiring intimacy then you can look to have that discussion at that point and frame it from a place of vulnerability and say, look, I am really feeling you. I'm really digging you. I'm really digging what we have and what we are uh, creating. I am feeling like I want to get intimate with you. I want to take those next steps, you know, again, whatever, however you want to frame that or say that. But first, you know, again, starting with those I statements, you know, this is what I feel and this is what I and desiring and just what I'm valuing in, in us and in our connection, there is something that I want to make sure that you are clear about and you're aware of because I respect you. So this and is this is us giving consent as well, right? Yes, okay. Yes. Consent uh, is, is key. That's right? been coming up so much lately and I wanna make sure that I yes. I, I wanna begin to cover that as well. Um, I mean we don't have to do it here, but I wanna like start to get the listeners used to hearing words like consent and uh, whatever else it is that's going to come up. But yeah, that's been yeah, such absolutely. a big one in the media lately, just due to all of the um, like sexual assault and like the people in power taking advantage of women and all of that. So I want to be sure to highlight some of these things and give people power and options and let them know, like, here are some empowering things that you can do or here's how you can take control. Absolutely. We, we have to, uh, in this conversation of, of disclosure, we have to give people 
you know, the information so that they can make an informed choice and really an, inform, an informed consent, you know, to they know whether what they're saying yes or no to fully without manipulation, without secrets or lies or, or taboo or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so then it, it could be, again, something that once you realize you're ready, you're interested in an intimate relationship. Now, you brought up then literally you're naked <laughs> yeah. and you are there together. That That is, well, just that is not the best and ideal time for um, any dialogues about uh you know, the, the, the relationship or, you know, you, you don't want to wait until, or even contraception, you know, how are we protecting ourselves? You don't wait until that literal moment that you're naked because your, your emotions and your hormones are in charge at that point And your, your head, kind of your, your clearest mind is not going to be in, in charge generally. Yeah. Your so, mind's in your genitals. Yeah, <laughs> like that's so, where all the brain know, fluid goes. So that I would not say is ideal. And so you would want any of that window kind of before that, before you approach that intimacy. And again, because respect, respect is, is a huge piece. And many people uh, do contract HSV2 um, without being informed and made aware that that was a risk that they were being um, exposed to at that time. And so what did that feel like? How can we remember that that didn't feel good mm -hmm. when we realized when we had that first outbreak or when we were diagnosed and we realized I had no idea. Yeah. I and didn't have a choice in this. So how can we offer someone else that opportunity? Well, here's and, the thing, too, yeah. is like a lot of people I'm finding who have it like there are studies that show a lot of people with it just don't know. So exactly. it's not just that you're not telling someone there's also that you know a person who may not know or yeah, who could have had it yeah and just go through life without any outbreak so and it's it's tough to avoid exposure to it to say the least and then you know how does my a thing that i've always wondered is for hsv specifically like when did type one become type two? Like if cold sores are on your lips and then you get it genitally and you pass it on genitally, like it's, it's, isn't, hasn't it originated from, is its origin type one or what it's, and this is probably a question for medical professionals who also look at history and all of that. But that's just something that I always play with in my mind. Like how, where did this start? Who started herpes? Who started HIV? Who started STDs in general? Because yeah, if yeah, these I mean, aren't. So you can get, you know, if you do a blood test, uh, if you're not having an active outbreak that they can, you know, get a culture from, or uh, then you can get a blood test, of course, at any point, and, you know, they're checking for antibodies and just seeing how your body is reacting. And um, so from that, you can determine yeah. is this
living with the diagnosis, right? Because a lot of cases go unreported. There's extreme backlogs of reporting. So knowing, again, how common HSV-1 and HSV-2 are, and HSV-1 with oral, we know a lot of folks tend to get that when they're younger from casual skin-to-skin you know, -skin contact kisses or, you know, uh, contact with relatives. So, yeah, there are a lot of possibilities. Yeah. And so the fact that there's so much stigma around this and uh, we have a sex-negative culture because it's correlated with being a sexually transmitted infection, it definitely makes it more challenging than yeah. other viruses that are mm -hmm. out there that are not sex or collect, uh, connected to sex. Right, It makes right. it harder for folks to, to come out of that that shame and create a new story and a new narrative and just treat it as this is this is just a virus this yeah. is just a virus and at any point we will all potentially be exposed to it or contract it so what's the big deal what i find what i find interesting is that we're you can have antibodies for hsv but test negative for it. Absolutely. So like if you're if you reach above a certain level, now the virus is active. So in my mind, you know, it's just like the flu. When you get a flu shot, they inject you with the flu and now you're supposed to be able to fight the flu, even though it evolves or whatever. So yeah. it's like anyone who has antibodies, even if your test comes back negative, if there's a presence of antibodies, does that mean you have herpes? Like, are, are we just waiting? Does this just mean, oh, you just haven't had your first outbreak yet and you could still pass on your antibodies to someone else since you're testing negative? And it's just like, it, it opens the door for a lot more questioning and where where there's so much, uh, like you can't tell how long you've gotten it and it's it does seem to be an inevitable virus. And yes. if everyone's getting chicken pox and you uh like we want our kids to get chicken pox early like there's chicken well, now you know we have the vaccines for that so now our young people are not getting chicken pox really because, oh yeah because shit that goes vaccinated. to show how old i am then chicken pox are essentially being eradicated but what we do have is um herpes zoster um, herpes zoster is shingles. Mm -hmm. So what we see then are shingles, and that often impacts people in later years. Yeah. Uh, as people age and get older, if you were someone that um, had chicken pox, then you have herpes zoster, and therefore you are susceptible to shingles later in life, which just like any of these herpes uh, strains and diagnoses, uh, stress is a huge trigger for these things so yeah yeah but, but but yes our children are not getting chicken pox if they're getting their vaccinations so okay so now that which brings me to my next point so if we've gotten chicken pox and chicken pox is a form of herpes is that the level or are those antibodies what we have in our body that are showing up on a blood test like i'm not yeah. expecting you to ask this question these are oh, just right, questions right. i yeah, want no, these are these are these, These are, are great questions all... to ask. And again, the inevitability, like you're saying, is, is, is the key takeaway here is that we are – so so why? So why are we then carrying so much fear, so much shame associated with something that's so very common and part of the human experience? Yeah, and I feel like the stigma really comes from people who don't have it. it like that's what fuels it. What fuels it is people who don't have it, and then you know what what brings it 
back into reality. There you go. Yeah, sorry. Who don't have it or don't know that they have it or just don't know a lot about it. And then, like, the people who contract it go into it with those thoughts in mind, you know, versus, like, being able to go, oh, shit. Like, I knew I was going to get this at some point. Oh, well, now I have to tell other people before I have sex with them. And having that attitude versus the attitude that you get where you're carrying the thoughts and uh, feelings of other people from the stigma into your diagnosis and going on with the rest of your life that way. Like, it, it's just much better stress wise to think about it like that. Like, oh, shit. Well, you know, we're here now. <laughs> so let's go forward. Yeah. It's a manageable diagnosis. Mm -hmm. We aren't dying as people. We aren't dying uh, associated with herpes. It's a manageable diagnosis. And again, there there's a spectrum in terms of whether someone is going to be symptomatic or asymptomatic and whether they're going to have outbreaks or not have outbreaks or viral shedding. All of those things, it doesn't look the same for each person. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. And then I always tell people, you know, just I, I think that, herpes is one of those things that kind of tells you what's going on with your body like it's a physical sign of all right you know you've got a lot of stressful things going on let's start eliminating some of that you've got a lot of bad people in your life let's start getting rid of that you know you're you're eating a lot of cheese stop eating cheese and, and I, that's me i know i know i love queso but i've 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 limited it a lot and I think that I just feel better overall, but herpes has made me more mindful of my health and it's made me be more proactive in making sure that I get into the gym, that I'm cooking my own food more. Don't get me wrong, I still enjoy a box of rice, but <laughs> like Chinese food is my You're favorite. Oh, uh, no, not yet. Not yet. We'll get to a point where I got to cut back on the, the sodium, which I've already been proactive about. So uh, we'll cross those bridges when we get to them. So <clears throat> sex positive families. So we just talked a lot about well, we talked about consent. We talked about having the talk. Um, <clears throat> oh, how are our parents? Well, wait, are you educating the parents on having the conversation with their children? Yes. So that is that is the heart of the work is helping parents to feel confident and competent around having sexual health discussions. Sec and I use the term sexual health, not sex, because sexual health is an umbrella and it's more than sex. And it's before you talk about sex. It's about building self-worth in children. It's about having uh, open dialogues and you know, shaking shame and uh, addressing the realm and the spectrum of their sexual health, which is a lifetime, it's a journey. And it starts with in infancy, you know, when you're building those bonds uh, and attachment, those things lay the foundation for what will come in their sexual health journey. So yes, definitely. And I wanna share that last night, so I have three children. I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and uh, an 18, she'll be 19 in one month from today. And so with my 19-year-old, she's visiting in from college with her boyfriend. And the three of us had some really wonderful discussions uh, last night because, again, as they, as 19, um, he's about to be 20-year-olds, you know, they're, they're certainly in that, uh, in that uh, time of you know, being sexually active or sex sexually connected and intimate. And so they're making those choices and those decisions that 
work for them. And so it's important that we have these discussions. And so I let them know that, you know, I'd be uh, doing this podcast, you know, the next day. And so it was really great to be able to openly talk with them about, you know, these diagnoses. And again, talking about how can we reduce risk and have safer sex and what types of conversations are they having about their their selves and their relationship and their goals and their values and how much of that are they processing as individuals yes. and then sharing and expanding out with each other mm-hmm. and it was it was really beautiful and i think that you know the more that we get comfortable and clear about who we are as individuals and our own sexual health journeys as parents and caring adults the better we're able then to be of influence to the young people in our lives and it's not something that you want to do when they get to being sexually active you want to start these conversations and uh, dialogues early so very early we're talking about body autonomy giving them the accurate words so that they're naming their parts it's not you know the wee wee or the cooter you know (laughs) these their actual body parts we talk to them about safety and again good safe touch unsafe touch and boundaries and there are all these things again that come before you're talking about penises and vaginas mm-hmm. you know uh, enjoying each other or you know butts and you know all of that <laughs> yeah. stuff so. yeah my uh girlfriend's nephew um like i heard them say vagina in front of him and i like are you crazy and they were like <laughs> no he needs to know these things because you know what if he's touched and yes. you know like uh i think that the conversation went along the lines of if a therapist is asking okay well where did he touch you and then they're talking about cookies you know, he needs to be saying penis, vagina, not cookies and hot dog, you know? So it's, it's, I mean, as early as, and he was seven when I heard this. So it's like, what you're saying is we need to be planting these seeds through the opportunities that come up. So when kids start to grab in their junk and they're like, oh, this feels good at whatever age that is, you'd be like, hey, okay, well, this is masturbation. You are experiencing dot, 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 and be able to have those talks and not avoid it. Because then I think that that's where the shame starts. It's, oh, I touched myself. My mom yelled at me. This is a bad thing. This is a bad thing. And then you just carry that on where that bad seed was planted, not a positive good seed where it's like, oh, you know, you're coming into these are the options that you are going to have now. And this decision, like you you, you have to do, like you said, what's best for you, even though, you know, at childhood, I think we should be more responsible in uh, guiding them through the decisions that they make that early. Right. Yeah, we want, really ideally, we, we want our young people to love and embrace themselves, and that includes their own bodies. Mm-hmm. We don't want them to feel resistance or shame or disgust in terms of their own bodies, because unfortunately, a lot of us are adult children, right? We're adult children walking around with a lot of internalized messages and harmful messages and shame uh, and also trauma that we've experienced along our journeys and some of us are you know haven't really healed from those things and it's healing is a a lifelong process Mm -hmm. and so if we can just realize and see that we are in a position of influence 
we can change the story and the narrative for another person, a young person's life, yeah. and help prepare them. So to me, there's a big difference between preventing and preparing. And so a lot oh, of what I talk about shit. isn't about prevention. I think I'm we got the title of this episode. That? <laughs> That's going to be the title of this episode. As I have more of these conversations, I realize something that has not come up, and that's more so being on the other side of it, being a man and hearing more about consent, sexual assault, and recognizing, oh, shit, you know, I can't remember the last time I verbally asked for consent to have sex. So do we? how do we teach our young people, our young, uh, well, our children in general, you know what what does no look like or what is consent like i we're talking about giving consent but we're not talking about receiving consent if i'm haven't received consent or if i haven't received no consent is that a yes because that's how you know i've taken it in my mind it's like well okay she didn't say no so this is a go when in reality the reason behind her not saying no could be that i'm a massive dude and i would overpower her and she would just she's she's scared she's scared to say no so how do i how do we educate our youth to go into it learning okay hey you know how about you give me consent here exactly so this is huge um and a lot of us didn't get this when we were younger and a lot of us now as parents even don't realize that we're missing the mark so there before your child even gets to the position of intimate relationships what we need to do in early childhood is when for example my four-year-old my eight-year-old when you know their sibling dynamics of course you know are always fun and so when one of them communicates no or stop you have a rule in your house there's no pretty pleases you know there's no oh come on or any of that stuff and even as parents as the adults we have to respect our child's voice and our child's autonomy and not put them in the position to compromise their no 
And so that's what happens a lot because our a lot of our current prior generations were raised to in 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 household dynamics where I'm the parent, you're the child. I, you know, the parent knows what's best for the child. So again, mm. we were we were brought up in power dynamics that really don't serve us and don't allow for human rights. Because this transfers into politics, it transfers into your career, it transfers into relationships. Right. So I have to respect you because you are an adult. And we see that that is not accurate or helpful messaging that's harmful because not all adults are safe adults. Not all people, we have, there's more that we need to teach our children and foster in them the ability to have a critical lens. We need to help them see what are the features of a safe adult? What are the features and characteristics of someone that you can trust? What are the features of respect? What does it feel like to be respected? And they learn that from us. We're those first and primary relationships, whoever the caring adults are in their lives. If we're not showing them respect, then they come to to question their worth and their value and their ability to communicate their yeses and their noes. So that is something that we reinforce in our young uh, people in our house very early and frequently. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we hear them, you know, kind of if they're getting into a tiff or anything, and if it's coming down to someone having said no or stop and they're not, a tickling, for example, that's a common thing that um, a lot of us grew up experiencing is, and that's a real learning opportunity. Uh, I prefer not to engage my children in tickling because I think that it can it can cross those lines of consent really quickly. And the person that's being tickled is not often in a position to really give active consent and because they're 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 in a vulnerable position, right? Yeah. They're in that place where it's oh gosh, it's so this is so fun or it feels funny. Oh wait, no, now it's uncomfortable. Oh, I must stop stop. And then the person you're laughing, you're laughing. <laughs> so that's a good example of how nonverbal cues. That's a perfect right? example. <laughs> right. So, but but they're laughing. They're having a great time. I want them to keep having a great time. But no, no. <laughs> oh, <God>. Yeah. <laughs> I think that goes back to power dynamics because yeah. if a kid says no i don't want to kiss uncle johnny 
you know, on an intuitive level, they know something that we don't. But because of the power exactly. dynamic that we've grown up, because that's your uncle and I'm your parent, you don't tell us, no, you don't want to do anything. You're going to go kiss your Uncle Johnny. We've got to move away from that because the message you're sending to your child in that moment is that their body is not theirs. That their body is oh, to be shit. used. Yeah, their body is to be used to please other people. Because mm. if Uncle Johnny gets upset, I don't want Uncle Johnny to get upset. So, so that's now why I, I have to him. use my body, and that exactly. I mean on a deeper level. Like I think that that's where a lot of uh, child sexual assault cases mm-hmm. take place as well, molestations exactly. and everything. And the kids just don't tell because of that fear, that power dynamic. So yes. this this can get... Yeah, what, what we know of uh, sexual abuse uh, is that the perpetrators are most often people that the children know. They are not the person in the van, you know, with, with the, the candy and the lollipops and that are snatching folks. We do hear, those are the stories we hear about. They get sensationalized in the media. We don't hear about Uncle Johnny and little Petey, you know, and their family dynamic. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of cases of incest and a lot of cases of inappropriate touch. There are also a lot of cases of touch that's happening, non-consensual touch and sexual abuse that's happening between young people. So you have maybe a uh, 14-year-old child and a 5-year-old child, and that 14-year-old child is imposing, you know, uh, their power and, you know, inappropriately touching uh, a younger child. Mm-hmm. Those things, again, are not, we don't hear news stories about that, right? That's not the thing that gets broadcast. Often those are the things that when they are discovered, parents, caring adults, often do not report them. They kind of push them under the rug. They try to minimize them. And so, again, these there's healing that never takes place and the messaging gets really convoluted then for the, for the, for the people that are involved in that situation in terms of their worth, their value, their body autonomy, their sexual selves. Um, it's, it's real deep. It's really complex. And a lot of us are walking around with these histories and without the outlets to be able to really process them. We, you know, life doesn't have a pause button no. so that we can figure this all out. So that's where sex positive families, I really strive to bring forward these conversations and to bring things out of taboo. We have to talk about these things that we aren't talking about Mm -hmm. so that we can collectively strategize, lend voices to, allow people to be heard, allow their stories to have value and worth. Yes, uh, yes. For people to see them for what they truly are so we can create some new stories Mm -hmm. and so this isn't about spreading awareness by any means it's about inspiring action we don't want people to start talking about talking about better sex conversations with their children we want people to start executing uh, these conversations and getting their children to a place where they're able to understand and communicate uh, about their sexual health without fear of shame or fear in general is going to change if we're just talking about it. We have to actually do the work and confront those things that might feel awkward or mm-hmm. might feel uncomfortable or might feel foreign. Uh, it's not about doing things perfectly. It's not about hitting the mark all the time. 
if you're willing and open to at least listen and ask the questions and engage in the dialogues, that is a huge start. Yeah. The rest of it is semantics, and I, I, I work hard to put a lot of information and resources out there. So, uh, and books, books are huge. Books are great ways to engage young, to engage our children. There's so many wonderful books out there that have been written and are being written that help parents and their children sit down together and learn these things together yeah. with pictures and now videos. We have amaze.org, for example, which is creating these really fun and creative videos, short videos that help us have these conversations. So really there's, there's no excuse. And what is getting in our way often is really just ourselves and our own sexual health journeys that we've had and some things that we haven't dealt with or processed. Mm-hmm. So we got to give space for that too. Yeah. So we need to deal with that ourselves. We need to deal with our own before we can begin to, you know, help others or deal with others' issues. I like that. I like that. Um, So we're approaching the end of everything that I had for you, all of the questions that I had. This ended up being a very, very um, important (laughs) episode. Um, Like I said, normally I just interview people with STDs. We talk about their experience and, you know, what's it like dating and everything. But I'm finding that there's more of a need for this as well because bringing awareness to the fact that there are so many people living in the world with STIs, with herpes, with HIV, and oh, by the way, it's manageable, it's treatable, and just because you were just diagnosed, it's fine. Like I, This is a tool to connect people with the resources that are available to them that they may not have otherwise known about in addition to evolving into something that is, in fact, inspiring action, inspiring people to, uh, well, have you, do you, does your 19-year-old at least know about your HSV too? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. we, we, again, we talked about that last night, and it was part of the conversation, and knowing that I was going to come onto the podcast and be speaking very openly. Um, and yes, I think, I think, again, we talk about disclosure. I did a video, actually, um, that folks can check out about talking to uh, your family uh, about your diagnoses, whatever that, which, whichever diagnosis that may be. Yes. Uh, and there are reasons why people may choose to disclose and there are reasons why not. And I kind of go into well, what are some things to consider if when you do choose to disclose, mm-hmm. how you can do that and why that could be of benefit. So yes, I believe fully that I want to show up authentically in my relationships and that absolutely 100% includes my, my young, my children. Yeah. I, I want to be my most authentic self because I am a, I am a model for them. If I'm not living my fullest, most honest life, then how do I give them permission for them to do that for themselves? Yeah. And we'll link to that video, um, where you can have that conversation with your awesome. kids about your diagnosis. I want to link that into the episode description. So please send that to me, uh, when sure we get will. off here. Um, is there anything else that you want to leave us with or anything else that you want to share from uh, like a tagline or something from sex positive families? Well, we are all about shaking the shame and trashing taboos around sexual health. And we want you to be confident. We want you to be competent. And I say that it, that I'm speaking to parents and caring adults because we all 
have young people in our sphere, whether it's family members, whether it's uh, young people we're teaching, whether it's friends, people we babysit, whatever that looks like. And so we are in a position of influence. And so we need to know our influence, step into that influence, get informed and feel empowered to be able to influence better outcomes for our young people. Yeah, so we want to use our influence to raise and encourage influencers, not influencees. Is that even yes. a word? <laughs> influencees. Oh, that's. I don't see why not. I know. Well, hopefully, uh, it just makes sense. I'm not gonna edit that out if it's wrong. So you got to deal with it. All right. So we want our young people to have great sex lives. There you period. go. And that's just so like foreign as a parent, like. I don't want my my infant daughter because that's how you see her. Like you, even if she's twenty eight years old, has three kids. Like you see that baby that you held, and you're like, no, no way, she's having sex. She adopted those children. Exactly. <laughs> or, no way is my infant having sex. You're right. No way is your infant having sex. Your infant will grow. Yeah. Trust me. Nineteen years old, twenty years old, twenty one years old, That's a good place to leave off. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People featuring Melissa from Sex Positive Families Podcast. How can we find you on social media? Oh, I love being on social media. So sexpositivefamilies.com is my website. It has a wealth of resources. I have blogs. You can connect to the podcast through there as far as uh, in all the social media platforms. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter um, and LinkedIn. And so all of those links are available through the website. Uh, The podcast is on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, um, and or direct from the website. And we're having some real great conversations with a lot of diverse perspectives. Every week I drop a new episode. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, I can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Reddit at H on my chest, the letter H O N M Y C H E S T. Uh, follow us on any of those social media sites. On Facebook, it's just me. I'm just Courtney Brame, and I have a logo of, uh, or the podcast logo, something positive for positive people as my cover photo. I'm looking to the side and like the most epic. Uh, black and white photo you could ever imagine. <laughs> um, if you like or don't like any of these episodes and you haven't already, please leave us a review. Those reviews help tremendously in terms of allowing the podcast hosting sites to um, advertise our podcast to other people. The more they see people are interacting with the show, they want engagement, we need engagement. So uh, just engage with the show. I understand anonymity is important to a lot of our listeners and not wanting to be associated with the show just because you know we're afraid that maybe someone may think or find out that we have an STD just by association. 
believe me, a lot of people listen to this podcast who do not or do not know that they have an SCD. So you're fine. And I completely understand if you want to stay anonymous, but you can still leave us a review as your token of appreciation if you found this episode or any other episode helpful. Um, Till next time, stay positive.